Our scripture today comes from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. This week has been full of tension, and our passage of Scripture should inform our response. What is the Church of Jesus Christ in the city of Vancouver supposed to say when schools are open, sports leagues are running, pubs are still pouring pints, and the church is not allowed to gather for worship. What are we supposed to do? That's what we're looking at today. Like, what is the public life of the church supposed to look like? Biblically speaking, from our passage in Titus chapter 3, what is the public life of the church supposed to look like? How are we supposed to live as Christians in full view of the watching world? What does it look like when we take our gospel-transformed hearts and we, and we take those hearts for a walk in the real world of problems and difficult circumstances? I desperately want us to see how the power of the Holy Spirit transforms us from the people that we once were into the people that we're called to be, and how that is actually good news for the whole city around us. This is a vision of the public life of the church and how God calls us to live for the good of all people. It's a vision of the gospel for the common good. We're going to just do something very simple, walk through this text for things that I'm going to highlight for us as we walk through the text. We're going to see who we're called to be. We're going to see who we once were. We're going to see how we are changed and then what we are called to do. Okay, we're going to look at who we are called to be, who we once were, how we are changed, and then what we are called to do. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Now, you may need to take that verse and write it out on a piece of paper and stick that up, you know, in your bathroom mirror so that it's the first thing you look at every day. You might need that up there for a couple of months, but this is who we're called to be. When there are decisions made by rulers and authorities that negatively impact the church, we have to thoughtfully and biblically and prayerfully consider our response. On one hand, we can sort of throw our arms in the air, throw our hands in the air in, in dismay and say, like, let's get our lawyer on the phone. This isn't fair. This doesn't make sense. We need to do something about it. And I know that some of you are already thinking that because you've already told me that you're thinking that. 
On the other hand, I think we need to consider God's word to us today out of Titus chapter 3. How you respond right now in this situation, in this moment in history, will inform people on how they think about your Jesus and your church, and I, for one, am not willing to exchange long-term gain that I think we have with the relief of short-term pain. We have to be very conscientious about how we respond to situations like this. There's a bigger game afoot, and we need to pay attention to the totality of what God is doing in our world. Paul is writing this letter to his young disciple Titus, who is on the island of Crete, where Paul has left him in charge of establishing some order in some of the churches that they've planted and bringing some leadership to the churches that are being planted. And, and something you need to know about the Cretans. They had a reputation of being a little bit unruly. They were a bit anti-authoritarian. And Paul knew that they were a people with an unruly nature. And if their unruly nature was not replaced with their new identities in Christ, like this worked out of the transformation of the gospel that we're going to see a little bit later here in the passage, if if they're not living out of that transformed vision of that spirit-filled life of how they can be good to the whole island of Crete from all of their communities and then beyond, if they're not living out of that, they're going to end up fighting battles that they don't need to fight, and they're going to end up having the heavy hand of the rulers and the authorities come down upon their heads. That's, That's what he knows about them. And I think this passage is telling them what they were supposed to do in the public life of the church. And in a long line of commentators through history on this passage, I think we need to know that we're able to take this passage from that context and apply it to our present cultural moment right now. It does not say, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to stop living Christ-like lives in the present cultural moment. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, remind them that they need to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to give up on Jesus' kingdom and his rule and his reign. That they can give up on loving their literal neighbors. It doesn't say that they have to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient and stop being the church on mission. That's not what this text says. I think it's really important today that we read what it says, not what we can import into it, but, but what, right here on the pages of our Bibles. It says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Right? And instead of <laughs> burning our emotional and spiritual energy being angry at public health orders, What if we turned that zeal and that passion into being prepared for every good work? Just what would that perspective shift look like? What if we allowed this season to renew our sense of mission, to renew our sense of how we love our neighbors? What if it renewed our desire to hold up the hope we have in Jesus for the perishing world around us? Right? Nobody's telling us to stop being the church. I've been telling you this for years. This building that I'm standing in right now, standing in front of a camera talking to you, this building on the corner of 43rd and Prince Edward is not the church. We are Christ City. No legislation can stop us from being the church of Jesus in the city of Vancouver. 
Jesus' church is not constrained by walls. In fact, we might be realizing right now the power that we have when we actually take hold of a vision of the church that is not inside any walls, but is active and alive in all places that we go. Like, we are Christ City 24-7. We are Christ City when we're alongside our coworkers. We are Christ City when we're working with stressed-out students in the classroom or the counseling office. We are Christ City when we're sitting in the boardroom making decisions about this year and next. We are Christ City when we're sitting down for coffee breaks with frazzled people who are barely holding it together. The pressure and isolation of this season are crushing people, and when you find yourself in that moment, you are Christ City. You are Jesus' ambassador to a broken and dying world. We are Christ City when we're on that Zoom call with somebody who can't handle it anymore. We are Christ City when we're serving families in need. We are Christ City when we call that person who we know lives alone and needs a simple word of encouragement and somebody to read some scripture and pray for them. We are the church. Nobody can stop us from doing that. And, and, and all I want to say is, People are watching how you respond. Like they're wondering what's going to happen to the Jesus-y guy in their office or the Jesus-y gal in the office when something happens that might not be beneficial for Christians. Are they going to turn into the person who blows up and just complains about the government and rips and rails on government or are they going to be the people who say, you know what, the life of the church is beyond our Sunday gathering. And while I might not love what's going on right now, you have to understand that the Spirit of God has sent me in power into all the world and that I'm here to actually bring a message of hope and restoration. How are you doing? Titus chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. Now, I know by this point in the message, some of you have already queued up the email on your device, and you're ready to email the elders, and you're ready to say, this is soft, this is weak. There are times to stand up to the authorities in the world, and we have to sometimes disobey for the sake of the gospel. Now, I agree. There are times for that. I just don't think this is one of them. I've done ministry in two different communist countries. In one of the communist countries that I've done ministry in, it is totally illegal for a foreigner like me to come in and teach the Bible. It's illegal for the church to assemble as we are. It's illegal for them to disciple their children in the scriptures because it's criminal indoctrination. It's illegal to run kids' ministry in that context. It's illegal to say Jesus is Lord, and it's in quiet defiance of all kinds of rules and laws for the church there to come together and worship. And when the authorities try and stop evangelism and they try and snuff out the life of the church by making it illegal to preach Jesus, then yes, of course we have to disobey. This happened in Acts chapter 5 in Jerusalem and the apostles all got arrested. Right? Peter stands up before the council that arrested them and he says, we must obey God rather than men. It's true, 100% accurate. I've also done ministry in another communist country where they have made legal provisions for people like me to come to their country and teach the Bible. It is legal to be a Christian. It is legal to gather as the church. It is legal to teach and disciple your children in the ways of Scripture. 
And so what we have to do is get a visa that says we're there as a religious worker and we have to have that visa on us when we're in country so they know what we're doing. And that we're not there to sort of, I don't know, rise up some kind of rebellion or political revolt. So in that context, we follow all of the laws and we obey all of the government orders and we fall in line with them for the sake of the witness of the church in that country. And so what do we do here? We obey, even if we don't agree. Our obligation to submit here is not contingent on our agreement. You don't have to think all of the public health orders are particularly logical for you to be required to submit to them. And I think it's important for the life of Jesus' church that we live into this kind of common good compliance. God is using this season. Let's just find the ways that he's using it. It says in verse 1, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Okay, it says on the negative side, do not speak evil of anyone. That means don't be a slanderer, speak the truth. It says avoid quarreling. That means don't be contentious, but be peaceable. On the positive side, it says be gentle. Well, we know in Galatians 5, it's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, gentleness. It says on the positive side that we should show perfect courtesy toward all people. We actually find, and, and you can look this up in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, that's actually the pattern of Jesus, that kind of courtesy to all people. And I just want you to notice that the public life of the church is to be for the common good of all people because we're ready for every good work. There's no limitation on who actually gets to access our kindness and good works. And, and, and really, Christ City, don't forget that the light of Christ shines brightest against the backdrop of all of the pain and the darkness in the world right now. Good deeds done by you in Jesus' name may stand out as stronger and brighter and, and more magnificent than they would have a year ago. So that's who we're called to be, but what about who we once were? What about who we once were? I want you to see in the text that there's an intentional tension being built here between who we're called to be and who we once were. Look at verse 3 with me. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. See, when you see Paul in the New Testament writing about the transformation from who we once were to who we now are, you always see this, this contrast and comparison, the tension between who we once were and who we now are, but you always see with him a self-identification. It's we ourselves who were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, all of that. That means me. So I have to understand my life in Christ from who I once was to who I'm called to be, and know that there's a transition point as I've had an encounter with Jesus. It's in stark contrast, though, when you look at this passage to who we're called to be. All of these, it's like a, it's what you would call a vice list in the New Testament. I think it's great for our humility just to be confronted with the truth of who we are apart from the intervening grace of God. I think it's great for us to be confronted with this because sometimes we think, you know what, I'm a great guy. And I just want to remember that we ourselves, I myself, was once this. And because of Jesus' work, I am now this. 
And apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and that encounter with Jesus, that's who I was and that's who I would be. And this, in verse 3, is really a picture of human life apart from grace. So the question is, how do you roll from that posture of who you once were to who you're now called to be? What does that look like? So we've looked at who we're called to be. We've looked at who we once were. What about how we're changed? Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Amen. There's a lot in here. Um, that's one long sentence that is like the richest, most beautiful, I don't know, gourmet buffet table of all the best spiritual truths that are around in the whole world. And at the very center of all of this, in verse 5, it says, He saved us. He saved us. Not by anything we did, but because of what Jesus has done. And the Holy Spirit takes the work of Christ, applies that to our hearts. He makes us new. He renews our hope in light of the promise of eternal life. So let me just summarize what we've seen so far like this. Verses 1 and 2, we see the kind of posture that the church is to have in the world. It's a vision of the public life of the church for the common good. Verse 3, we see our need for salvation as we're reminded of who we once were apart from Christ. Verses 4 through 7, though, we see the source of our salvation is God's mercy. We see the foundation of our salvation is not our works, but Christ's. We see the means of our salvation is the regenerating and renewing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we see the goal of our salvation and this assurance that we are now hopeful and have been promised eternal life. Now, all of that is important, and I could spend the next four weeks just preaching about this kind of this line in this passage. It's one sentence from verses four through seven. But this is what I want to drive to today. This is where it all comes together about the public life of Jesus' church, right? Who we're called to be, who we once were, how we're changed, and then we see that it all comes full circle back to looking again at what we're called to do. Okay? This is the evidence of our salvation. If we looked at the posture of the church for the common good. We've looked at the need and the source and the foundation and the means and the goal of our salvation. Can I just say this is the evidence of it. This is showing us that this has taken root in our hearts. Look at verse 8. The saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Insist on these things. That's what he has just said. Insist on the gospel. So that those who have believed may be careful to devote themselves to what? Building their own life, finding comfort and peace, climbing the ladder of success, upward mobility. No. That they would devote themselves to good works. And these things are excellent and profitable for who? Just me and my family? No. Just the church? No. All people. This has been a massively disorienting season for everybody. And as I think about where we're going as a church, I am far less interested 
in the plans that we have or have had in place for Christ City. I'm far less interested in that than I am about seeing the kind of people we're being formed into. Like, what kind of disciples are we becoming because of what we've experienced in this last season? If the testing of our faith in this last season has caused us to run further from God, I'm deeply concerned. If the testing and pressure of this season has caused us to come closer to Him and to be closer to one another, then I'm very encouraged. And it's all about the trajectory, and I just want to call you back to Him. Like, I want us to think about who we're going to be in six months who we're going to be in a year, who we're going to be in two years, who we're going to be in five years. What kind of disciples of Jesus are we going to be in years to come? And I know that that can be kind of hard to think of when you don't know what's going to happen at Christmas. <laughs> but this is a bigger reality that is far more important, and I want us to consider it. When we know who we once were, and we know that we've been changed, it positions us with a posture of deeply caring about what we're called to do now. Like, we're not saved by our devotion to good works, um, but the good works that we devote ourselves to evidence the saving work of Jesus. And the way that we care about people around us is not an add-on for super-Christians. That's not how it works. It's the orientation of those who are in Christ. I mean, verse 1 says we need to be ready for every good work and that this kind of readiness will be a benefit to all people. And then we come all the way down through the text of verse 8, and it says that we need to insist on the clarity of the gospel being communicated, the good news of salvation, so that we are careful to devote ourselves to good works for the benefit of all people. The text itself is bracketed with the public witness of the church. And the core center of the text is the reality that he has saved us. And as we close out this year, and as we turn our backs on 2020 here in a few weeks, and we turn the corner into 2021, I'm just looking at the opportunities in front of us. I'm looking for a reimagined devotion to Jesus, where our prayer lives are transformed. I'm looking for a culture of prayer in our church to rise up and come to the surface. I'm looking for a devotion in discipleship that translates into good works. I'm looking at what it means for us as followers of Jesus not to sort of linger on the surface where we are, but to go deeper in our faith. What does it look like for us to really genuinely devote ourselves to Jesus? What I have in mind is a picture of the Christian life where we're making disciples that are devoted to Jesus in radical ways, where we are growing deeper in all of that stuff, but we need to pay attention to how we can tell. And it's the externalization of that deep devotion that shows up in the public life of the church. And so how are we loving our literal neighbors? How are we loving our city? How are we building and planning great institutions that are going to serve for generations to come? What does it look like to establish ourselves here with permanence, where we're dwelling together, understanding and knowing God's presence with us? What does all of that look like? Jesus' saving work incorporates us into a community that does not exist for its own benefit. Right? Jesus said we're salt and light people. Right? God's called us to do something here for the common good. And you can almost hear the old apostle Paul to the young disciple Titus. You can almost hear him communicating this in this beautiful letter that we have where he's saying something like this, like, young Titus, insist on the gospel. 
insist on these things. Trust me, if you get the gospel deep down into the hearts of the people that you're giving leadership to, and all of those who believed in God are displaying it both in public and private lives and the way that they're transformed by the good news, they will devote themselves their whole lives to putting their salvation on display for all to see. It's like Paul saying to them, encourage them in this by continuing to insist on the good news that he has saved us and that this is good for all people. It's good for the people who believed. It's good for the people who have not yet believed. It's good news for the rulers in your cities. It's good for the business owners. It's good for the moms that are knee-deep in diapers. It's good for young people. It's good for old people. It's good for the whole city. He's saying, Titus, preach the gospel, and you will see the evidence of that transformed life in the way that people devote themselves to good works in Jesus' name. Um, Gordon Fee wrote a great commentary on this, and, and he said the dominant theme in Titus is good works. That is exemplary Christian behavior for the sake of outsiders. It is the recurring theme of the entire letter. So Christ City, this is a vision of the public life of the church and how God calls us to live for the good of all people. And it's a vision of the gospel for the common good. We need to hang on to that because the decisions that we make and the posture that we take has ramifications for our witness for years to come. I want you to catch a vision of a devoted church. It's in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says they devo- devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, our influence in the world, the attractiveness of Jesus, it exponentially increases alongside the depth of our devotion. And I know that we think sometimes we just need to run around and do good things. But what I want you to see is that the devoted church devotes themselves to Jesus and the externalization or the evidence of that saving work and that depth of relationship with Jesus, that shows up in the public life of the church for the common good. I know you're tired. I know you're upset, some of you. I know the disorientation of the uncertainties in front of us. But I just want to say, can you call to mind for a moment what it would be like to be going through this with all of the uncertainties apart from the knowledge that you have the certainty of hope in Jesus? So devote yourself to Jesus. Devote yourself to the public witness of the church. Devote yourself to seeing needs around you and meeting them. And if you can't meet them on your own, call us. We will help. Major on the major things that are still going to be true in 10 years when all of this is in the rearview mirror. Major on the major things that are still going to be true about who you are in Christ. And don't get caught up in the worries of the day. Take a deep breath. Spend some time in prayer. Call and connect with somebody else in the congregation. I know God will bless you through it. As house churches online, I know you're getting ready to celebrate communion. Some of you are doing this on Sunday. Some of you are doing this midweek. Whatever that looks like in the house church that you're a part of, I just want you to know how important it is to be together. 
So as you prepare to celebrate communion, I just want you to know that's something we do together. It's not something we do on our own. It's something we do when we come together. And we are only coming together on the internet right now, usually through Zoom meetings. And I want to encourage you to prepare for communion. Communion is this beautiful picture of the relationship that we have with God through Christ, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you're a Christian today, pray through the liturgy with your group, celebrate communion, and really enjoy the knowledge that God loves you and that it's evidenced every single time we look at the cross and every single time we behold the work of Christ through the bread and the wine of communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're so thankful that you'd engage with us. Why don't you let us know who you are and how we can best serve you and connect with you, point you to Jesus. I bet you have questions. I'd love to answer them. Why don't you reach out to us, connect with us? We'd love to be able to do that. Let me pray. Father, I ask you that you would be so gracious to our church in this season. I know we're not going to be gathering in person for a number of weeks. And Lord, lots of us are stressed out. But we bring you all of that today. It says in 1 Peter 5 that we can cast all our anxieties on you because you care. And so we bring you all of our anxieties today. Lord, we know that there's lots of conversation and contention around decisions being made, but I pray that when people connect with us as the body of Christ City, as individual members of the greater body, that they would find that we're just people who've been with Jesus, that we're really not on about solving all the problems of the world on the structural, governmental level. Lord, that we just want to love our neighbors, and I pray that you'd help us to do that well. So we pray, come Holy Spirit, minister to each person who's in this right now, Strengthen us in our resolve to serve you that you might be glorified through the works of our hands. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.